Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 14th of May 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, bailout karma for the banks. And what should we budget for a future? So firstly, on today's show, bailout karma for the banks. And before we get into exactly what that karma is and the shape that it's taking, uh, we have an update on the Australia Post campaign, which is certainly not unrelated because postal banking is a, has a big role in this karma that we're going to talk about that the banks have coming their way. Uh, but we do have to report that this week, Christine Holgate, who was ousted as the CEO of Australia Post, has announced that she will be taking a new job with Toll Global Express, which is actually a competitor to uh, the Australia Post uh, most crucial division of the parcels um, postal network. Now, of course, while that's disappointing, obviously she had to make the decision that was best for her and by no means does it mean this fight has over in one, is over. In fact, in one sense, it has just begun and we can now get into the real meat and potatoes of fighting for postal banking. Um, but before we talk about that a bit further, we people should actually all ring their members of parliament and senators yet again and express their outrage at this because if they had have moved sooner, this could have all been cleared up as soon as it arose in October last year. Um, it was a complete ruse, uh, that is the Cartier watches were a ruse to drive out one of the most successful um, CEOs in Australian history, quite honestly. Um, the government has blown it, so tell them as much. They now have to move immediately to sack the entire board and restore a board without political operatives and with representatives from the licensed post offices and Australia Post itself. Um, and, you know, one other comment I want to make is that, you know, in this era of outsourcing where our government's constantly saying that public servants aren't good enough to play such and such a role or to make such and such decisions. We're outsourcing everything to uh, consultants that we pay a fortune and, and massive proportions of government departments are actually run by private individuals that are making crucial policy decisions. Here we had an excellent public servant and they just throw her under the bus, ditch her and you, can, you compare what she did which became very evident in the hearings um, that the, uh, the Senate inquiry was holding where you had on the one hand BCG, one, one such external private consultant which was paid uh, $1.3 million by Australia Post to do a review of how Australia Post could be profitable going into the future. What did they come up with compared to what Christine did when she came into the job which she just did her own research and on instinct knew, based on what other countries had done, that if Australia Post wanted to survive, it needed to, one, get paid for the banking it was already doing basically for free for the banks, and two, move into becoming a bank in its own right. That's an interesting comment, Alisa, because now we've been covering this a lot in our Australian Alert Service 
publication, you know, as a, as a, as a key mobilisation for a long time. Now, we use a mail house to mail out our Australian Alert Service, so when I happened to drop the publication over uh, recently, uh, the principals of the, uh, the mail house came out and said, what's this Christine Holgate thing all about, because they do read the Alert Service. And I gave them the heads up like you've just given them then. And yeah, and he said, funny you should say that because, you know, I, I talked to the uh, Australian Post people that come here to pick up the mail and they said, yep, Christine was outed because she wanted to create a bank, mm. Australia Post Bank. So yeah. even the, the drivers knew the issue was banking. Now I found that absolutely fascinating. You know, Australia Post is not a small corporation, it has a huge number of workers but those workers knew what the issue was. Yeah. Very interesting. And Bob Catter made the point in the hearings when he testified that one of the only reasons the banks signed up to the Bank at Post deal where they actually paid for what services they were already getting was because of the threat looming, a much broader threat than paying up a few dollars, um, that it would become a bank. And they're very terrified of that as we're going to talk about a lot yeah. more very soon. Um, but I also wanted to stress that um, what we've done so far and what's come out of the hearings has exposed in a critical way the drive for privatisation and represents a crucial victory in fact because if you go back and look over those hearings and we'll be putting out further videos showing crucial excerpts of that, what you see is that various from the government to Australia Post board members were all saying oh no, we're not going to privatise Australia Post. Now, of course, they'll claim that they weren't all along as they do, but the problem is they're not going to be able to do it now because the spotlight is on and we have defeated the privatisation at this point. It doesn't mean it won't come back at any point, but with the push now for postal banking, that is the way to secure that victory and enshrine that um, now, because you don't even know whether the uh, bank at post will be renewed, quite frankly, under the new leadership of Australia Post. So we have to go in that direction for Australia Post's sake to keep branches open, because um, as we know, so many LPOs were forced with being on the edge of shutting down, such was the financial situation they were in. But secondly, we also need to go in the direction of the post banking to address the inordinate number of bank closures. Over 300 bank branches have closed according to the Finance Sector Union, in a year uh, up until the end of April. So you've got that fact. You've got the debanking of people where they can't find any of the big private banks to take them on, so we need public banking. The cash ban, and part of Australia Postal Bank is to make cash uh, services accessible uh, and also to keep people safe from policies like bail-in, where the private banks can, under existing legislation, confiscate people's investments in order to bail themselves out in a new crisis. Well, Lisa, we've got a lot of videos on our YouTube channel about this, so if any new viewers come to the program and think, what's this about Christine Holgate, and you don't understand the issue, this is the most despicable, disgusting piece of criminality I've ever seen in being in politics for over 32 years. Hmm. So I suspect people should go to our YouTube channel and watch some of the videos because mm. we put them together in order to fight for an Australian Post bank, actually to reinstate Christine Holgate as well because she was ousted under terrible, disgusting circumstances. But look, yeah. the issue was privatisation. They intended to take, you know, sell Australia Post off for about $7 billion, just like was done with the Commonwealth Bank, and then you know, break it up and you know, the government gets a windfall, but we, the, the Australian public loses a crucial critical service. Yeah, that's right. And I want to start 
getting into the realm of the karma that the banks have coming their way uh, because what we're beginning to see, there's so many countries around the world and particularly in Europe where they've had the results of extreme monetary policy such as negative interest rates impacting them. So what you're beginning to see is where governments are being forced now to intervene to defend the public and that things like access to cash and having a bank account where they don't get charged to keep their savings. So a few examples of that are in Norway, the finance ministry is now intervening to force banks to support the use of cash. Um, and that has yet to take shape exactly how they'll do that, but the fight has begun. And it was interesting to note the banks and their representatives have basically said, no, we're not supporting cash anymore. That's not our responsibility because we're now specialising in other business areas, which is, you know, making their massive profits out of speculation. And we'll come back to that. Sweden is another example where they've already brought in such legislation. On the 1st of January, they brought in regulations forcing banks to provide reasonable access to cash in the form of an amendment to the Payment Services Act. So that fight has begun. In Denmark, which is the country with the longest running negative interest rates, the Minister for Banking Legislation has demanded an end to the slide into negative interest rates uh, because whilst a lot of banks over there charge um, very you know, high level deposits, it's usually over $150,000 but it's been coming down all the time and Denmark is now charging anyone that has more than $20,000 in Australian dollar terms negative 0.6%, so they're being charged to keep their money. And so there's a big fight that's now blowing up about who's responsible for this with government blaming, blaming uh, the banks and the central banks and so forth, but the central bank policy is also being dictated from the European uh, Union. Now, the other debate that's broken out is on postal and public banking, just to run through this quickly, where the United Kingdom uh, where a quarter of ATMs have been shut since 2018, an average of 50 bank branches are closing per month since the start of 2016. The House of Lords is now pushing to reduce financial exclusion by um, demanding the Financial Conduct Authority take a better policing role in that. They're setting up banking hubs and cashback trials where people can get cash out at businesses without having to buy anything. So these are not the exact measures we would propose, but there's a push in that direction. In Canada, you just had a, a postal workers union that presented a proposal for Canada to return to postal banking, which they had up until 1968. And this, was, this proposal was voted up at the Prince Albert City Council, which is a large city council region. There's 1,200 communities in that region with a post office but no bank and the indigenous communities as a subset are even worse. In New York City, uh, the mayoral candidate is calling for a People's Bank of New York. You have this massive movement called Public Bank New York which is backing state senators who are pushing the New York Public Banking Act as a legal framework uh, to set up the ability to set up public banking and other states such as California passed such a legal framework in 2019 and San Francisco and LA are looking to take up the prospect of doing it now that it's passed. Eight other states have similar legislation uh, that has been put up uh, but there's actually been 16 state public banking bills put up just in 2021 in the United States and three at the federal level for some form or another of public banking. So we have to 
cut and go to the next break, but we'll, I'll get your comment on that afterwards, Craig, because this is quite a stunning shift that's going on. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing bailout karma for the banks, and we're going to get into, in this segment, uh, a bit of discussion about the coming bubble, global financial bubble that's about to blow out much worse than 2008. So everything they've done since then to sustain themselves, to try to prop themselves up is coming back to bite them. But Craig, um, on that matter of postal banking and public banking becoming so popular, what does this mean for Australia? Well, at least the Christine Holgate issue showed that this was already in train, like the idea of an Australia Post Bank. She was going to bring that issue to the fore. Um, so what we've done, and we have been working on this for quite some time as well, We've written the legislation for an Australia Post Bank and we hope to have that legislation introduced into the Parliament in one of the coming sittings of Parliament. So people should get involved in our campaign. Don't sit back and wait for someone else to do it. Get involved and watch this, uh, watch this YouTube video or keep watching Channel 31, whatever you're doing, get involved. It, look, unless we have people involved, as we've proved with our cash ban, the defeat of the cash ban, the, you know, the defeat of bail-in in this country, mm -hmm. uh, Unless people get involved, ordinary folk like watching this video, then we, no shift will be allowed because the politicians will get away with you know, pushing these terrible policies down mm. people's throats. And we've shown what's possible in this Australia Absolutely. Post campaign for sure. Now I want to put up a graph here and show some of what's at stake here in this bubble. This is the US stock market which is now at over $49 trillion. Uh, now, the US Federal Reserve just put out its 2021 financial stability report in which it warned that a broad range of asset prices could be vulnerable to large and sudden declines, leading to broader stress to the financial system. Of course, the stock market is just one aspect. There's so much more beyond that. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but you can see in that graph... Um, in 1999, the gap between the blue line, which is the total stock market value, and the green line is the GDP. Then another marking point was 2007, and at the end of 2020, you can see how that gulf has enlarged incredibly. Um, now, Federal Reserve Governor Lael Brainard added to the warnings from the Fed, talking about the failure of Archegos Capital Management, this small hedge fund that collapsed in March, and said it revealed the ongoing capacity for, quote, leveraged investors to generate large losses in the financial system, admitting that US regulators are still not capturing this risk. And so that's what we want to talk a bit more about now, because, of course, hedge funds specialise in the speculative instrument known as derivatives, which is just pure gambling. And this is the bigger bubble that lies beneath the surface that you don't always see. And as she indicated, the Archegos case uh, has exposed the fact um, that all the kinds of regulations they introduced after the 2008 crisis are not working. And in fact, derivatives are designed to breach those rules, to skirt them, to get around them any which way. And boy, are they good at what they do. Um, but before we go into that, I'll show another graph which shows the credit derivatives contracts and how they have soared to, since 2008. They've increased... Uh, by 469% from $737 billion after or around 2008 to $4.2 So anyone that thought we dealt with this problem, no way. 
Now, what Arcagos was doing is it was using these kind of derivatives to bet on share prices without ever technically owning the shares. And because of that, it didn't have to disclose its large concentrations of shareholderships. Usually you have to disclose anything above 5% of ownership in certain shares with the Security Exchange Commission. They had over 30% of concentration in two or three different shares in particular. Uh, which was not disclosed because their shares are held on the balance sheet of the banks that are ponying up the money on margin. In fact, those banks were skirting the margin rules because they didn't technically hold margin accounts in Arkegos's name. So they were lending up to 85% on margin for these bets to be made where they should have only been holding 50%. And by doing this, uh, and by having it concealed and not revealed to the Securities Exchange Commission, you had nine or ten different banks that were all lending money to Arkegos to speculate in the same shares, building up these massive concentrations. So they're all, these banks are all leverage, leveraging up this hedge fund on the same stock. And then when it, when it burst, when they had to pony up money for the margin call um, and dump all these shares, Tens of billions were wiped out. We still don't know how much really was wiped out altogether. Mm. It's still uh, unravelling. And the other thing, final point I'll make is that the Volcker rule, which was part of the Dodd-Frank Act that was supposed to stop uh, banks from running hedge funds and gambling in these kind of derivatives, um, they skirted it by lending this money to these small hedge funds. Arkegos is technically known as a family office because it has fewer than 15 investors and that means they don't even have to be regulated by the SEC or registered at all. Um, but doing this, the banks were technically lending out their balance sheet to these hedge funds so the hedge funds could do the gambling for them. Listen, yeah, this, go back to the first graph and you have a look at the difference between the you know, total GDP and the total value of the US stock market and you say, well, how is it? What are they producing, if anything? to have that increased capitalisation. Well, the fact is they're not producing anything. Yeah. It's just all pure, pure speculation, as the Arkegos uh, example shows. And therefore, they, this is an exceptionally dangerous speculative bubble tied to the stock market that's going to crash. Mm -hmm. Now, why do we talk about the US? It's because it is so over, you know, it's, it's over 200% of GDP uh, in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the overvaluation of the stock market. Australia is much smaller. We always talk about the US because it's much more uh, disastrous. Uh, you know, it's going to be much more disastrous if anything you know, breaks, like mm. what's happening with these hedge funds. Australia's capitalisation in, in the stock market is about 2.27 trillion, and our overall GDP as of May this year was 1.94. So we're just a little bit, you know, maybe 115 percent. So we don't have the same huge amount of. It's a huge amount of money, but the same amount of money as the United States. So this is all the you know, points to the incredibly important reason that we must have Glass-Steagall. Mm -hmm. Strip out all this financial speculation out of the stock market, out of the economy. Make sure that people's savings are protected. And that's what we do with Glass-Steagall. This is one of our principal policies that we must get in place now before a crash happens. Unwind these derivatives because derivatives are nothing more than fancy gambling, uh, gambling uh, you know, tools used to try and make money and hide losses from institutions. Yeah.
That's a big thing. They hire losses. They're very efficient at doing that. Mm -hmm. But those losses will get realised at some point and therefore you can see the, the, the pack of cards of the current financial system literally disintegrating in front of our eyes. We don't want to have an, a, a system unravelling that quick. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs, needs to be controlled. Yeah, that stock market bubble is bigger than the combined value of the GDP of the US, China, Japan and Germany and the mm. derivatives is much worse. Now we've got to take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing what should we budget for a future? And uh, you can read more about this topic in the Australian Alert Service. As always, contact us for a copy if you haven't already. Um, what we want to talk about, of course, we had the, the budget this week that was revealed. Um, and I want to say at the outset, look, you know, what we have to do to transform this country really cannot be measured in dollars. It requires quite a different mindset. And one little example of that mindset shift is if you look at the $15 billion the government has allocated for infrastructure projects, which projects in and of themselves are pretty, you know, insignificant projects compared to what we've proposed for the country. But if you look at that $15 billion and compare it to what was made as a decision in 1949 for the Snowy River Mountain Scheme to be built, which was worth 15, spending on it was worth 15% of GDP. In today's terms, that's around $300 billion for one project, not $15 billion for a whole host of roads and things, just patch-up jobs. Um, so we have to start thinking, of course, in teaming up with our Australian public postal bank that we're pushing for to have national banking to create the credit that will unleash, you know, a complete transformation of this country. And I wanted to read a quote from the Scottish Banking and Finance Group, which is an activist group in Scotland that's pushing this. Um, right now, they're, you know, they've put out a series talking about how austerity is a political choice and we can make the opposite choice. And they sum it up this way very well. A government with its own currency and central bank can create whatever money is needed to support economic activity. There is no universal law of nature which says that a government must delegate money creation to private banks. It is a political choice. We can choose to design a people's currency and a people's banking and financial system. This is the issue. Look, we've published our infrastructure development uh, program for Australia. We're talking large development projects that put many, many people into work. And 15 billion is a joke. It's a total joke. We need to build water schemes like the Clarence River scheme to harness the power of the water that's in the Clarence River in northern New South Wales. Now, this is proposed by Professor Lance Andersby as a pump, you know, a pump store, electricity store, hydro scheme, right? And it would save the, save the, uh, the lower areas of the Clarence River from flooding. We need to build a high-speed train to link up through the port of Darwin in order to be able to export uh, more goods to our closest neighbours efficiently. So look, we could go through a lot of this, mm -hmm. but at the present time, the government's mentality has always been and is still, whatever you spend money on, you've got to make a buck from, mm -hmm. right? And this idea of the future, when you plan for a budget, you plan for the future. That is, how are you going to transform the, econom the economy for the future? And you can only do that through large-scale infrastructure development projects. And their thinking is exposed by their attitude to China right now. I mean, look at the Darwin port. We'll put up a map of how Professor Lance Endersby envisioned 
our access to some of the biggest ports in the world within a couple of days and what we could do. And given that the Darwin port was vetted by the Defence Department and Dennis Richardson, who was Secretary of Defence and ex-ASIO, has said at the time that any idea this was part of a broader strategic play by China is alarmist nonsense. And you can read more in, about the details of that in the Australian Alert Service. I mean, with what's going on in Asia right now, Southeast Asia with building of bridges, canals, dams, high-speed rail, we could be intersecting this and this would transform the nation. That's right, Elisa. This issue of the Darwin Port is a red herring. The fact of the matter is, you know, the Chinese have a lease over it for 99 years. It's been completely vetted by the Defence Department, by ASIO. They've yeah. said it's fine. This is part of the China bashing effort that, that the government's into. Those that want war. So stay tuned. Next week, join us. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, See you Lisa. again next week. Thank you.